My name is James Rosebush, author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Winning Your Audience, Deliver Your Message with the Confidence of a President. And if you want to learn how to define your life and have the courage to live it, you should be listening to More Than Corporate podcast with my good friend, Amber Furman. Welcome to the More Than Corporate podcast, where we discuss finding fulfillment, defining success, and living your best life. There's no roadmap to success, no one-size-fits-all answer to fulfillment. I believe it requires us all to be vulnerable and authentic about what we want to accomplish and have the courage to step out of our comfort zone to chase our dreams. Keep listening to hear stories from inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day. Welcome back to another episode of the More Than Corporate Podcast. I am so excited for this interview. And I feel like I say that every single week. And it's so true. I love the people that I'm getting to connect with. And James Rosebush, the guest for today, was just such a fantastic connection and has such an amazing story. I cannot wait for you to jump into that. James Rosebush is a speaking coach and best-selling author. James served in the White House under Ronald Reagan and was chief of staff to Nancy Reagan. James was taught by Dell Carnegie and Ronald Reagan to be a public speaker, and he now uses those skills to help individuals rid themselves of fear to discover their authentic self and deliver a message that rings true with their audience. James is a speaking coach and the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Winning Your Audience, Deliver Your Message with the Confidence of a President. Guys, I can tell you, if you haven't checked out this book yet, you should go get it yesterday. Like It is so freaking amazing. I read it to prepare for this podcast and ended up buying the hard copy as well as the audible copy. It's fantastic. There's so much information in there. It digs into the mindset side of things as well as the practical side of things. And we'll dig into more about the book in the interview with James. Seriously, though, if you haven't read it yet, go check it out. Do yourself a favor. You'll be glad that you did. I'm really looking forward to you hearing this interview with James. Before we jump into that really quickly, if you or someone that you know has ever said the words, I'll be happy when, I just need to keep whatever fits in that sentence, losing weight, working hard, building my career, and then I'll be happy. If you've ever felt like you've done everything you're supposed to do, yet life isn't turning out the way it's expected, if it seems like something's missing despite other people telling you how successful you are, the Define Your Life Mastermind is for you. The most powerful question anybody ever asked me is, what does success mean to you? As I've explained this topic on my podcast and with my coaching clients, it has become clear that most people don't answer this question enough for themselves. The Define Your Life Mastermind is designed to help you get clear on what success means, what a well-rounded life looks like, and what your best life feels like. Once you know that, you can build a business that fits into the life that you have now designed and surround yourself with people who give you the courage to step out of your comfort zone to live this vision that you've created. If this sounds like something that you or someone that you know needs in their life, head over to the Define Your Life 
www.morethancorporate.com for more information. Again, that's defineyourlife.morethancorporate.com. You'll be able to schedule a call to talk to me and see if we're a good fit to work together. This mastermind will change the way that you think about your life. It will change the way that you think about success. And I am so excited to be moving into a second round of it. I can't wait to see you there. Until then, let's jump into this interview with James Rosebush. James, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you, Amber. It's my pleasure. I cannot wait. You and I have had some really cool um, conversation already about your book and your history, and I'm so excited to share that with my listeners. Let's go ahead and actually go way back, though. And one of my favorite questions to ask people is when they were growing up, high school or college age, what they thought their life was going to look like. Because I think it's fascinating to see the difference between what you thought and how it actually turned out. Well, you know, that, that's so interesting because very often I'm asked from, uh, by millennials, could I advise them how to establish relationships? Because millennials are largely, hate to generalize this, but they're largely devoid of social skills. So they have a hard time getting relationships going with other people. And I've had this when I've given speeches, sometimes there's Q&A afterwards and millennials will stand up and they say, could you tell us how to connect with other people? And what you just did is a good example of that. So I tell them it's very easy. You go up to someone and they're going to, first of all, they're like, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I can't go up to someone. But let's just say you're at a bar or you're hanging at a party or something like that. And you just, this is what you do. If you follow this formula, 1000% will work. What you do is you say to the other person, tell me your life story, which is basically what you just did to me. Right? <laughs> so tell me your life story. And the person, what follow this because it will absolutely 100% all go like this. The person will say, well, yeah, I work for uh, Salesforce or I work for DoorDash or, you know, and then you go, no, 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 no. Tell me, where were you born? And they're like, oh, oh, uh, well, I was born in St. Louis. Well, oh my gosh, I, I had, you know, my, my great grandfather was born in St. Louis too. Really? Yeah. Well, what did he end up doing? See what, see what I'm doing here? So you go back because generally people like to talk about themselves. I, I don't, but I mean, generally, generally people like to talk about themselves and they're flattered when you ask them, you know, what, t- tell me about yourself. And so what happens is you get the other person talking and it gives you what I call these niches to uh, enter the fright, enter the conversation, right? So let's go back to this pretend conversation. Oh, I was born in St. Louis. Oh, well, that is so weird. My, my great, my grandfather was born in St. Louis. Oh, what did he do? Well, you know, he was early in the uh, aviation business, which is big in St. Louis. Really? Well, my family lived near where those aviation plants were. And then you go, well, tell me more about your family. Are you the only child? Are you blah, blah, blah. See where I'm going? So it gives you helpers along the way, right? So sorry to divert from- No, I love it. But what you said really, really triggered it because I do these sessions called AMA, Ask Me Anything. And that invariably is, that that question is asking. I'm glad it is because I I coach and I, I work with a lot of millennials who are just, I have to say they're wandering the world. 
you know, they're looking for relationships. It doesn't even have to be like a romantic relationship, but they're looking for better business relationships. They're looking for connections. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I just got off the phone this afternoon with someone who uh, has, has worked for me and is I also mentor. And he's a great, terrific person, very smart. But he, I see him as just wandering. He's a millennial and he's just looking to make connections. So anyway, I'll stop there, but you kind of triggered me. If, if you want, and I'll answer your question if you want me to. But. I love, well, let's just dig into this because I absolutely love that um, you're giving this practical advice. And, and I do want to hit on the fact that so many people go to networking. I mean, one of the things that we talked about yesterday was the power of networking. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute with your story. But so many people go to networking events or social events and they just don't even know where to start. And so I just, I really like that advice that you just gave because it, it gives that humanizing element. Like you just, everybody looks like they're 10 feet tall when you walk into a networking event and you don't know anybody and taking it back to where they grew up and, and what they like to talk about in their family just humanizes both of you so that you can build a connection. You know, that's interesting, Amber, because I was asked to give a speech one time here in Washington, DC on networking. And I think I might've given a speech that they maybe they, it was a little bit perhaps unexpected because I don't know if they wanted me to talk about how to network but I, it gave me an opportunity to really dig into what networking really is and, and what it really means. And I think that now it's sort of a dated term, networking. I, I don't think people want to be networked, you know. Uh, but, of course, with social media, you know, people are joined together on those platforms. But networking is, is dated now, as I think it is. It's kind of a framework or, or it's a framework to establish relationships, I think, networking. But without, and follow this though, Amber, you can have a networking framework and never score a relationship. 100%, I 100% yeah, agree. Yeah, because just being like, you're a lawyer, right? So you could go to bar association events, you can, which they have like, Oh my gosh, everyone's inbox today is like flooded, right? Yeah. With virtual, oh, be a part of this, be a part of that. And I'm like, I basically delete, 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 you know, because I say that it's kind of rude, but I say, well, you know, I don't need to, and, and I'm a people person. I love people and I love meeting new people. But do I, and then I had to ask myself, do I really need to meet more people or do I need to, you know, and I, I think that this whole idea of relationships has lost, it's kind of been commercialized. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of like the, the commerce of relationships, which I think is really sad because relationships that are really productive and are really fruitful have to do with giving and curiosity. It is not about taking or like making a deal because you, you know, you, you met this person at a networking event. You know, it's, it's all about giving. And it's about, I think those two things, giving and curiosity are tremendously important. And those are really the keys. I know we're, we're meant to be talking about communication skills here today. And 
those are two really incredible keys. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, we're meant to be talking about wherever this conversation takes us and I'm loving it right now. So there are no rules here. Um, Second of all, I definitely agree with what you said. And it really hits home for me as somebody who was not a networking champion until I opened my business. And then I started networking for the purposes of stability. I didn't know how to run a business and I needed something with stability. So I joined a networking group and it wasn't until somebody described the difference between networking and net connecting to me that I really got the point. Like I thought I was networking because I would go to the same meeting constantly and give this elevator pitch about my business. And I just didn't understand why it didn't work. And it's that connection that comes after you meet somebody, what you do to actually grow that connection and get to know that person that allows you to build the trust and relationship that they want to do business with or have a friendship with later. And that's the part that I feel like is missing in today's networking cycle. No question, you know, and you can, you can work on your skills to actually build relationships at, let's say, networking events, but it isn't always work. You know, there are meant to be, there are meant, some relationships are meant to be, and others are you meet actually to separate. And this is an interesting phenomenon of consciousness. So there are millions of people in the world that you are meant to connect with but you may never connect with them because you may not be in the same geography or whatever. We, we've all had this phenomenon of, gee, uh, so-and-so just call, called me or just texted me or just emailed me. I was just thinking about them, right? So this is a, one of the key things in my new book I talk about is 65% of all communication is nonverbal. So it's consciousness to consciousness. So the more open you are when you go into a crowd or, you know, it could be purposeful or not. You should be thinking about how it is that true connections that are truly profitable actually come about. And uh, I I can tell you that crazy, I'm always looking for the crazy things that happen. And, And I'll give you an example of this gentleman that I was telling you about. He was a, basically he was a, uh, a security guard at one of um, one of my client companies and he was very he didn't you know, he was he was unusual I mean he wasn't just standing there he was a he's a people person right so he engaged everyone that came through the door and I found I found this amazing thing about him and I don't even know how it came into being because I was there to coach people on speaking and he, it turns out he is a mastermind when it comes to coaching people based on Shakespearean language. And here he, he is like a security guard, and which is not to denigrate security guards, but it, it wasn't that wasn't his, his calling in his life. So we had this match, right, that has continued over our passion for language and words and communication that was found in the most unlikely of places. I remember growing up, my dad, you asked me about how it is, you know, how did I get the idea for my passions and that sort of thing going way back? Well, my dad, he gave me three things. He was uh, an executive. He was a business executive. He worked for General Motors. He was a musician and he was a Dale Carnegie speech instructor. 
he gave me all three things. He gave me a passion for business. He made me be, which I don't know if you make a person be a musician, but you know, he, he, I had to take music lessons. Uh, and of course, you know, no kid wants to do that today. You know, music is, is one of my passions. So I would say he gave me those three different buckets, right? And they're all interrelated. So when I went to his factories, you know, he would have me come into his factories and he would line up all the, fa the factory workers and he would observe me. He said, I want you to go down the line and I want you to shake hands with all <laughs> people, right? And on the face of it, I had nothing in common with these people. It, it wasn't, I wasn't better than they were. I was, it was just, we didn't, you know, it just came from totally different universes. But he judged me and he marked me down. If he, he would say, you didn't look at that person in the eye, you didn't have a firm enough handshake, you didn't ask that person, like, what, how's your day? You know, what, what do you, what's going on in your life? That kind of thing. That's how I was brought up. How and, old were you at the time? Oh, then I think I was probably, what, seventh, eighth grade, maybe? Okay, yeah. so you were, you were young um, as he's making you do this, which is amazing, amazing skill to teach yeah. someone. Yeah, I, I was I was young. I, I wasn't yet in high school. I don't remember going to his batteries when I was in high school. I probably would have said, get out of my life. I'm not <laughs> doing that or something. Anyway, probably in junior high school I did it. But of course, I've never ever forgotten that. And today, I think these skills are, they were certainly lost on the millennial generation. And it's a great tragedy. It's a huge tragedy because it's a loss of human capital. When people are not skilled in, I think, reaping the richness that can come from a relationship with an audience, with other people, with customers. And this, this is a loss of human capital because it leads to a lack of, I think, productivity and enrichment yeah i definitely agree with you and um you know there's so much that i want to hit on before we continue down that path because i think that technology plays such a big part in this and i want to get to that in just a minute let's give people a little bit more context than what they heard in the intro um, regarding your book so you have this amazing book out that's on amazon right now number one on amazon's list and that book is about public speaking called Winning Your Audience, Deliver Your Message with the Confidence of a President. And you and I talked so much about this when we met yesterday um, concerning one of my favorite things about your book, which is the fact that it has this perfect mindset piece combined with these perfect practical piece. And it's kind of all these things that you've picked up through the stories that you just told about your dad, your stories in the White House, your stories afterwards, and just everything that you've picked up throughout your life that's allowed you to be this amazing speaker, instructor, and coach for other people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your inspiration was for writing this book? And then we'll go into some of the key takeaways from it and, and really dig into that content. I think it was two, two reasons. Um, I would say one is on the pull side and one is on the push side or whatever you want to call it, the demand side, the supply side. So day after day, I sit. Now, I've been doing this kind of coaching for many years, this coaching in addition to my 
other businesses, but I see uh, CEOs, salespeople, really people at every level, but people you see in the media that have to go out and uh, let's say a, a good and graphic way to everyone can relate to some CEO like uh, the head of British Petroleum. They have a huge oil spill. And the guy's, the guy's going, he, he has to go, of course, the media is after him. He gives these interviews, which, I mean, it, it, you just, it leaves you speechless that a person could be that ignorant about communicating with his customers and shareholders and, and legislators. I mean, the guy, he was driven out of his job, obviously, because he caused a, a downfall, I mean, a decrease in the equity value of his company. But he said completely inhumane things and you see these people make these blunders and you wonder where where did they come from that they didn't get the training and they didn't get and when i say training i'm not just talking about well this is how you stand up and you you know you don't be afraid you know this is sort of elementary kind of speech coaching no i'm talking about how you really dig in and find your authentic self and how you care more about your audience than uh, yourself and your message more than yourself, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we'll, we can get into that later. But so you asked me, you know, what was my motivation? So I saw the problem, number one. Number two, I saw that I had the experience that, and the experiences that few people have had. Not only was I taught by my father, Dale Carnegie, and I had to go through all those classes, but I had a mentor and in my boss, who was called the great communicator, he, you know, Ronald Reagan. So he, you know, the top five of all U.S. presidents ranked by, by anyone's poll. So what made him great, and I wrote about this in my last bestseller, True Reagan, uh, was, of course, because he could communicate and because of what he believed in. So how could I not write this book? How could I not coach these people and impart what I had learned uh, through... You know, I, I talk about in my book, uh, in, in the in introduction about how at age 20, I was given a Rotary International Fellowship and I went to the Soviet Union when it was really a communist country and I was trailed by spies and all, it was, it was a cloak and dagger kind of situation. And, uh, but I was there to meet with, you would say kind of the, the presidential cabinet, I mean, very senior level people and I would say they were four times my age and six times my girth. So you can imagine these like big fat Russian generals, right? <laughs> but I, I was in meetings alone with them. They were just translators. I was 20 years old. So when I came back, I had to give speeches to rotary clubs because that was that was my, you know, paying back what they, you know, they spent thousands of dollars to send me over there. And it's a rare occurrence at that time for people of my age to have the privilege of going to the Soviet Union, not to mention in the way that I did. I was not there living in, in student uh, hospices, you know, or, or hostels. And so I came back and I had to give these speeches. And I realized at that time that I had something that no one else had. And I had stories to tell about it. So I had a life experience that I could talk about in story forms because all people really want to hear is stories. So that was a beginning to my life 
of a life full of stories that I've had. And I don't like to bore people with my stories. I like to use them in an instructive way, like I just did with that story. I like to use it as a metaphor for teaching. And a lot of people will say to me, oh, yeah, Jim, but you, you know, you've had this interesting life and you have all these stories. And I tell them, I teach them, then I say, you don't, it doesn't even matter if you've had, you might have had like a boring life. You sat on a couch your whole life or whatever. Um, it doesn't matter. You can tell someone else's story. You can read an obituary. All you have to do is you stand up and you say, oh my gosh, I, I, I read this obituary of this, this woman who just, she was in a concentration camp and she got out by her, you know, who knows how she actually got out. She walked out of this concentration camp one day. No one followed her and she became an astrophysicist. And, and that's actually a true story that I, I heard the woman give the talk, but you could read it and if she later she passed away, you could read it in her obituary. So you see this story that I just told you, this brief story about this woman who escaped from the concentration camp, bang, that got your attention, right? That wasn't even my life. And so it doesn't matter whether you've had this, this trajectory of fascination and all this sort of thing. You can tell someone else's story. And that is some, a lot of people find that is like, really, I can do that? Absolutely. You know, or you could tell, oh, I met a kid, you know, this six-year-old kid is out uh, selling lemonade, a lemonade stand. And I thought back to my, you know, when I was growing up and I had a lawn mowing business and blah, blah, blah. You can tell stories like that. But you have to know where to find these stories. And this is what people want to hear. Yeah, so there's so much that I want to unpack there. So much that we could talk about. I feel like there's a million different ways we could take this conversation because you do have so many amazing stories and you've had some great experiences in your past. And there's a couple things that I want to hit on that is really related to what you just said. First and foremost, you talked about this um, oil spill situation. You just talked about it now. You also talk about it in your book. And one of the questions that my audience sent me that they particularly wanted to discuss is you have dealt with people at the highest level. You've, you've played the speaking game, if that's what we want to call it, it with, with the highest level. What advice do you have or how do you approach people when you're coaching them to recover from that inevitable mistake they're going to make, that inevitable senseless thing that they're going to say? How do you appropriately apologize, acknowledge, and move on from that without making the situation worse? Well, I have to say that it's an interesting question, but I mean, you... Amber, you kind of throw, throw, you're throwing kind of an impossible question at me. I know, I know I am. I know, you're really, because the guy, let's talk about the guy, uh, the, the CEO of BP, or let's talk about um, the guy, Culp, who was the chairman of GE. I mean, he, he caused a 10% share drop, or, or Elon Musk, okay? Now, these people are not prone to self-reflection. So like, let's take Elon Musk. I mean, he, he really got in trouble. He had to pay a fine. You know, he's sending out a tweet that was basically illegal uh, to do, and, and he got fined for that. I don't think uh, that a lot, of, a lot of people, 
I think if they knew better, they would be better. Let me put it this way. Okay. I think if they knew better, they would be better. Now, these people have paid a price, literally in the case of Elon Musk. I mean, he had to pay dollars, which is probably insignificant to him. But some people lose their jobs because they don't have the capacity to, to understand. I would say the people uh, who are genuinely repentant over something that they've said, if they are genuine about it, if they are remorseful about it, if they're embarrassed by having said something, misspoken, misquoted someone, said something that they want to take back. You know, another thing I have to say that I learned from my parents growing up was that, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but when you lied, you know, and your parents caught you lying. Yes. Okay, you never parents, understood how they always knew. They know. And uh, so they, they take, they took me in the bathroom and they said, squeeze the, the toothpaste out onto the basin. I did it. They said, now try putting it back in. You cannot put toothpaste back in the tube. So misspeaking is a very costly thing to do because people will usually always remember the bad much more than they will remember your apology. And sometimes it's also, I've had to advise people not to apologize because the story may blow over. You know, one of Nancy Reagan's rules was <laughs> Bring out the bad news on Friday night and the good news on Monday morning, because generally bad news, uh, you know, weekend times people, you know, they're, they're not as attentive, generally speaking, to news stories. So as always, if you have something bad to put out by putting out, I mean, in the media, put it out on Friday night, put the good news out. You want that good news to like trail you through the whole week, right? So people who... Uh, say things that they regret. Sometimes it's better to let it lie and die, let the story die, right? So, I mean, these are things that I, I've learned uh, because you, you work for six years in the White House and you know every single day you wake up in terror. You're, you're sweating when you wake up every day because <laughs> you're thinking that either you are personally going to appear on the front page of the Washington Post or the people you're working for are undoubtedly going to be on the front page of the Washington Post. And it's your job, in part, to make sure that the story is a good one, which in, in the case of, uh, you know, Reagan, I wrote, I published an article called We Had Protests Too. I mean, we think that we're in a period of tremendous protest, which we are, and it's, it's troubling, and it's very sad. But I would say that history is a fleeting history is a fleeting piece of fabric. People don't remember uh, Vietnam War protests. They, they don't remember, uh, you know, when Detroit was burning and when, you know, when, in my first job, we had, uh, we were taken hostage by terrorists uh, that came to our office and shot through our front door with machine guns. And we were thrown to the floor in our office, we were held hostage for five and a half hours until the squad team got them out of our building. I'm like, what? You know, I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, just beyond imagination. So, you know, I, I've been through these situations, but I think in the end, 
the, the final thing I, I would say about this is that if you are truly regretful of something that you've said, I, go, I use this phrase, whenever the heart speaks, no matter how simple the words, they're always acceptable to those who have hearts. And in the rare case that you should offer an apology or try to restore your respectability, if you truly feel repentant, then it might work. But it's not going to work if it's just a surface kind of, you know, uh, what is it called? Get out of jail card. Yeah. So let's bring that question back down to, you know, we talked about the highest level. So now let's talk about this beginner speaker who is going to inevitably get on stage and stutter or say something that they don't mean to say. Your book talks so much about building a rapport with your audience, how to create that, how to make sure you're doing everything in your power to connect with those that are listening. So when you have a stumble and you lose that connection, how is the best way for you to rebuild that? Because that beginner speaker wants to run off the stage and go hide and cry. And unfortunately, failure is part of the process. So how do we work through that as, be as beginner speakers to make sure that we're rebuilding that connection with an audience in the middle of a speech? Another good, another good question, uh, because I find your questions really get under the question. So I'll give you an example. So I... On my last book tour, I, I, I spoke in 60 cities. One time I, I was invited to speak at the Gerald Ford Presidential Library at, in Ann Arbor. And I thought that probably I would have an audience of students, right? I mean, at University of Michigan. That's where it was on, on the campus of the University of Michigan, blah, 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 right? And very, very nice people who run the Gerald Ford Library. And so... I get up, it was like a standing room only audience. And I get up to the platform to speak and I look out and what do I see? No students, they're all retirees. And what I didn't realize was that Ann Arbor, like a lot of university towns, are, is flooded with retirees who, you know, they get the enrichment of being near the university. Now there were a few students there but I realized I had to bang. I had to make an immediate pivot from what I thought I was going to be talking to students. I had to pivot to understanding that I was really talking to people of a different generation. And nothing could be more embarrassing than saying something in a talk to people who are like, who is he talking to? He's not relating <laughs> to me at all, right? Because you can pick this up. And I will tell you, one really important thing that no, you're not going to get this from any other like speech coach or um, in your mind, while you're speaking, and I know this because I have this happen all the time, and people shake their head, yes, they have it too. In your mind while you're speaking, your subconscious mind is running at a very fast pace. And people are like, well, no, no, that's not going to happen because, you know, you're focused on your, I can be intently focused on my message and I can be thinking that I wish that I'd had the salmon for dinner instead of the steak, <laughs> or I wish that tomorrow, tomorrow, did I, 
did I reserve a Hertz car, you know, for tomorrow, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or did I turn the stove off before I left? Or, you know, you can have all these things running in your mind. I can tell you that's absolutely true. Even though you're intent and you're focused on giving your speech. So your mind can actually run like, just think of it like an engine and, uh, or, or a bicycle, right? You have several, you've got gears, right? This is kind of a primitive story, but you have gears. So all of your gears are running. So what you do then is you have to pivot to another gear. You might have to, to transition to some stories that would relate to that generation more or that stories that uh, would be more uh, relatable or would be more effective illustrations for a different age group. Uh, there are also times when your audience is gender specific, not just an age group, but Another thing that I find very offensive, and you find a lot of speakers do it. So let's say they're going, you're, you know, you're going to um, give a speech in um, St. Louis. We, we've been talking about St. Louis, right? Okay, so you go go to St. Louis, and it just so happens that you're going, you're going to give a speech in, in St. Louis about, I don't know, some economic issue. You're at the St. Louis Economic Club or something like that. And you happen to be appearing like a week after they had their riots, you know, in St. Louis, which is like, five, believe it or not, not five years, four or five years ago. But let's just say you're making an appearance after that. If you go in and you start speaking and you make no reference to what that community has gone through, they're going to just totally discredit you because you've not recognized, now get this, recognize place. So yeah. you could be on a speaking tour or not. You could be, this could be your only speech you've ever, ever given in your life. But I've seen people, they mount the podium, they start talking and they're just, you know, they're into their subject. They never say anything about, gee, uh, the Red Sox, you know, the game they won last night or, you know, something like that, which makes the audience feel, whoa, that person at least, was, was prepped or did a little research or they're interested in me, right? So that's, that's very important that you, you show interest in people. We talk about, um, as you know, from uh, reading the book, we talk a lot about bringing down the fourth wall of partition mm -hmm. with the audience, uh, which you have to do in order to build a bridge to your audience. And unless you do those two things, you will be completely discredited as a speaker. And those are things, those are skills that you absolutely must learn in order to be an effective speaker. So it's really interesting. So you gave a couple of examples and one of them I can totally relate to as a Red Sox fan. I'm glad that you made them win in that example. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as though, like one of those examples was this happy moment. And the other example was these riots in St. Louis. And so many people, their first thought would be, I have to avoid this. This is such a negative topic. I have to avoid it. And what I hear from you is that this is kind of going to be that elephant in the room that you just can't avoid that you have to at least address in a respectful way to let people know that you care, however that comes out naturally for you, but that avoiding that negative topic just isn't the answer. Is that right? If you, if let's say you went to a friend's house and 
they, you know, at a time when you could go to a friend's house and you heard, you'd heard that her grandmother had just died. Are you going to walk in the house and not say anything about that? I mean, yeah. it's unthinkable. The, the story, the, one of the stories I tell in this book about the night that I went with Nancy Reagan to the drug abuse uh, graduation ceremony. That could be my favorite story in the entire book. It's oh, so my gosh, powerful. It's, I'm so glad you like that because it was one of the most meaningful. I, I rarely tell that story that I don't get choked up because it was, if, if and if I can, I can't even really adequately paint the picture that it was this massive gymnasium beyond, you know, it, it isn't, it wasn't like a, a local elementary school gymnasium. I mean, it was massive, beyond massive. And there were thousands of kids and parents and they were like, these kids had, had gone through uh, drug rehab and they learned it was a graduation and maybe 50% of the kids got to go home to their parents. That means they're pretty young kids, right? We're not talking about like 30 year old addicts here, right? And they wanted to go home, but some of them didn't get to go home because they did not, they didn't pass the test. So everyone was crying, everyone. And we're like sitting in the front row, we were observing all this. And as I say in the book, even the Secret Service was crying. I mean, the Secret Service is not supposed to cry. You know, they, they are dudes. You know, they, I mean, they are there to scare <laughs> people away, right? The press corps, I mean, they never cry. They were all crying, right? And so I'm sitting next to Nancy Reagan, and, and she had her speech all prepared and printed out on these uh, big five-by-seven note cards that she always used. And we looked at each other, and we were like, no. No, no way. So we ripped them up. And because I didn't want anyone to see those, to be frank. And I put them in my, I think I put them in my jacket pocket. And I didn't know how she was going to handle this because she was not great. <laughs> and uh, to her credit, I think that's the night that her life and her life with the White House Press Corps turned around. She went up there. They put a mic in her, a handheld mic. And she turned to the parents. She said, I'm going to talk to the parents first. She just talked. She said, you know, basically, I've been through it. My friends have been through it. There's no hurt like the hurt of a parent when they learn their child is addicted. And I want you to know I love you. I support you. I feel for you. My heart goes out, to, you know, just like that, right? And then she turns. She pivots. And she turns to the kids. And um, we were just, again, you know, we were all crying again. And it was, as I said, it was the night that she showed that she had a heart because she was really, very, really, really reviled as a first lady the first year she was in the White House. She was made fun <laughs> of, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that was the night that she showed her heart. And I'll tell you, after that, I was with her for five years going around the world on a drug crusade. And after that, she won the support of the most important group. And you know who that was? The kids. We, we would go to places and they would put her, the secret service went berserk. They put her up on their shoulders. Wow. And carried her around and she let them. I mean, she's invariably, you know, dressed in a suit or, you know, dressed really nicely. And they was, oh, Mrs. Reagan, can we, we just want to put you on our shoulders and carry you around. 
I mean, that's another emotional story, right? Yeah. So she, what did she do? She made a bond with her audience. Through something she, that wasn't always positive. It wasn't, I mean, there was positive and negative, which is amazing to me. Yeah, but she made a bond with her audience. The way that Mary Martin, who I also talk about in there, the famous stage and movie actress, I asked her one day, I said, you know, how is it you're so popular with your audiences? And she threw her arms around me, which was great. And she said, Jim, I was born loving people and they love me back. So when she's on stage, you know, she's doing all these, you know, probably people today, you know, they're like, who are you talking about? Because, you know, she's quite a while ago, but look her up, you know, she, uh, she was a huge star. And, uh, she told me the formula. She gave me the formula right there. You love your audience, they'll love you back. You don't, you don't love your audience, they're not going to give it back to you. They're not. Like, I where's love the love? You know? I love it. So, I mean, we could sit here and talk for hours about all the amazing stuff in this book, but I won't ruin it for everybody, and they should just go read it. Before we tell them where they can find it, I have one more thing in the book that I want to talk to you about, because other than the stories, this is my favorite part of the book, and that is for all the people that are listening, and I know I have a ton of, of aspiring speakers that listen to this podcast and they just don't feel like they can make it work. They're not that person yet. They don't have that confidence. You talk about this journal. Can you um, explain where the idea for this journal came from and what the purpose is of it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I subscribe to a, oh, I gotta follow a, a doctor who is all about relating your physical health to your mental health or vice versa, relating your mental health to your physical health, right? So a lot, a lot of people, I would say, generally accept that today. That, that's pretty generally accepted, right? And he says that in order to impact positively your physical health, you have to, and I'm, I'm not going to throw this into this typical phrase of, you know, good mental health, but uh, because that's just treated too lightly. But he says self-knowledge and, and recognizing your weaknesses and recognizing like your anger, your resentment, your thing, blah, 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 blah. And I, I noticed something that if you, and, and you'll see in the book that I have different stages of things that, you know, I want you to write. And why are we doing that? We're doing that to get rid of we're doing this to get rid of the roadblocks to becoming a confident, authentic public speaker. Why is it we must do this? Because public speaking is an intensely personal experience. You might think that, oh, you know, I'm a spokesman for my company or my nonprofit or my school or, or I, I'm a student. You have to get up and, you know, talk in front of other people. Believe it or not, public speaking is like, you know, getting up there with your clothes off. It is not, which might not be a pretty sight, you know. <laughs> and so you're, you're standing up there and it's, it's a, this is why people are afraid of public speaking because you're, you're exposing yourself. Well, the, this journaling 
the whole purpose of this is meant to, of course, and of course we know people who journal generally are more, have better mental health and blah, blah, blah. We, we know that. And uh, in the book, I also say, okay, journaling is not just for women. This, this is for men. In fact, men probably need to journal more. And I give examples of celebrities who people, oh my gosh, that guy, you know, in sports figures and everything, they, they journal. Why? Because even journaling your bad thoughts, somehow I have found this phenomenon and I'm not as regular a journal person as as I would like to, but times when I have journaled, I've had this phenomenon of that you think you have this enormous problem, right? I'm deathly afraid of public speaking, or I never want to see that person again, or I'm angry at my mother or whatever it is. By journaling about it, it can actually make the problem go away. There's something about admitting on paper, or I don't care if you're doing it on your phone or what, I don't care, but there's something about making a a mental admission. I hate my mother because she's picking on me all the time, or or I, I don't like my boss because of this, or I'm terrified of this, or something about admitting it. I would say this, Amber, I say it gives the problem wings to fly away. Wow, that's so powerful. Admitting the problem gives it wings to fly away. And it becomes less of a roadblock to you. And it isn't just, you know, uh, some journaling people will say, and. Um, Deepak Chopra is a friend of mine and and he and I, I mean, he journals, you know, like all the time is a big thing for him, but we talked about it. It isn't just journaling and saying, no, I'm okay. You know, I'm loved, I'm appreciated, I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, that I'm sure that that's a fine part of journaling as well. But to me, I think removing the obstacles to fluent, meaningful, speech or communication of any kind as i say it might be getting your kid to eat her dinner or his dinner or getting your kid to go to sleep at night this is this is like giving a speech this is communication and getting rid of the garbage that clutters your self image who you think you are goes miles toward making you a more effective speaker. It's decluttering your sense of self. Because when you have to stand up, you know, I tell this story about, you know, why did Jeb Bush in the last election, he'd get up and he could hardly put two words together. Who was sitting in the front row of a lot of his campaign appearances? His mother. So I'm, I'm always telling people, you know, I, I use this, don't take your mother with you to your speech. And I think, I mean, that's sort of a, a little metaphor, right? But it's don't take your fears, your subconscious, uh, you know, people, people who, you know, you have built up in your mind that they're criticizing you. It could be your best friend. It could be your partner. It could be your spouse. It could be your boss uh some all of us have people criticizing us now we're not universally liked by everyone so 
But if you think about that, you will start using the ums of public speaking because you're trying to please your mother or you're trying to please your spouse or you're trying to please your partner or you're trying to please your friend or whatever, whatever it is. And Reagan, uh, now I'm kind of going to stop here because I'm, I'm rambling with you, but Reagan was a person who didn't have that problem at all. You know what? He didn't care what anyone thought about him. Oh. Now, I will tell you, that was an unusual human being. Yeah. I don't know too many people who don't care what people think about them. There's a lot of people who say that they don't care. And they really, really do, like a whole lot. Um, it's that rare person who really doesn't care that is hard to find. And I do want to go back just a second and touch on what you said about you're not going to be everything to everyone. Like, not, not everybody's going to like you. If you're that person that's listening and you're like, but wait a minute, everybody likes me, I encourage you to figure out what you actually want to stand for because you're not being yourself if everybody likes you. <laughs> so go out Thank and you figure for out who that. you are. Um, so, I mean, there's so much good stuff in your book. And I personally believe that every human that needs to communicate with another human in any form should read your book because of the fact that it talks about the mindset, it talks about the hows, it talks about the procedures and the day ofs and everything you could possibly want to know and things that you don't even think you need to know about speaking and communicating. So where can people track this down so that they can go read it? Because everybody should. Yeah, so anywhere where books are sold, barnesandnoble.com, uh, local bookstores, which we really support, and of course, Amazon. It, it is a, in the first week it was released, it was an Amazon number one bestseller. So just go and get, do whatever you can to get this book in whatever format you can, if you want to listen to it, if you want to read it in, in hardback, whatever it is, because I wrote this book for you, and it's called Winning Your Audience speak with the confidence of a president and it is full of stories and it's full of how to and it's supposed to be a handbook you know write in it it's not a precious book just write in it and make it yours and and then get in touch with me about coaching because uh, you can find me at impactspeakercoach.com impactspeakercoach.com and that will tell you all about my coaching uh, also for companies, I do master class and we work with, uh, I've done women's groups, I've done mixed groups, I've done, you know, people in different uh, positions and jobs within companies. And uh, also, of course, with CEOs and people who have a lot of stake when they're, they're speaking in public as well. So th those are two things. Winning, winning your audience, get that book uh, as soon as you can. I mean, people are just it's got all these reviews that, uh, and then the big reviews that came out in the media before the people who were reading it submitted reviews said that it's the new Bible of public speaking. So, and, and of course, I'm very grateful for that, uh, not because uh, of anything, you know, related to patting myself on the back, but that this message needs to get out there to as many people as possible. Because one of the tragic things I have to say, Amber, is that I, that I learned that only 20% of all colleges and even business schools, only 23% of them require you to take a public speaking course. Well, 
don't you think that for a person going to business school, I know law school, you, you, I'm sure they have definitely have public speaking, but you know, business schools, I think it's more important than taking an accounting class. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. And um, law schools don't have as much public speaking as you'd think, and definitely not as much as they need. Um, I went to a very hands-on law school and I got a lot of experience and I walked out with more experience than most people who have a year of practicing under their belt. And I still didn't feel like I had enough. So that's amazing. Everybody needs to go track that down. I want to be respectful of your time. And this is the more than corporate podcast. So I'd be remiss if I didn't switch this really quickly over to the success element and ask you how you personally define success for your life. Well, I, I think that the thing that makes me feel the most good about the work that I do is when someone says, what you told me or what you did for me or what you, the work that you did changed my life or made me better or made me more productive or uh, in some way, some measurable way to, I'm basically a strategic kind of person who I like to grow things. So I like to grow companies, which is my advisory work. And I like to grow people. And I think both of those things, I guess that's my answer for you, is to see the companies that I advise uh, increasing their sales, their equity value. I like to see the people that I coach and work with enriching their own lives and uh, feeling better about themselves and being more uh, productive and efficient. Uh, one time I had a, had a company that had uh, branches of their of their firm all across the U.S. and actually in Europe as well, and uh, they they hired me to go to all those branches and coach the heads of, of all of those um, you know all all of those branches of their company to coach them and how to communicate. And I have to say, I had them for about four years. I think that was one of the most rewarding engagements I've ever had because. A lot of these people came in with fear and they left with confidence. I love what you just said, come in with fear and leave with confidence. And that leads me directly into my next question, because on this podcast, we talk so much about the importance of getting out of your comfort zone. And we talk so much about how fear can hold you back. And I know that this is a big part of your book as well. Um, for those people that are lacking that confidence, that need that push forward, that know that they have a message to share with the world. What's that first step for them to get out of their comfort zone, to face that fear? What's that one piece of practical advice that you might have for them if you could give, if you could wrap it up? I know there's so many that we could do, but if you could wrap it up into one or two little pieces, what would you tell people? A lot of people, Amber, say to me, well, you know, that's fine for you. You get, you know, you get invited to give speeches, but I'm, I'm, I don't have any opportunity to give speeches. Okay, so this is how you start. So everyone lives in a community. Communities have public forums for, uh, for new bond issues. They're gonna build a new library. They wanna change the school. They want, you know, whatever it is. You live somewhere. Get involved a little bit, even if you don't wanna get terribly involved. 
there are opportunities for you to go to like a town meeting, a town council, or, you know, whatever it is, and you can get on the public docket and you can say something. That is a good way to start speaking because democracy, the whole practice of rhetoric and public speaking was introduced in ancient Greece when they were building the first uh, democratic form of government. So speaking, effective public speaking, effective rhetoric is persuasion. And persuasion is a critical part of supporting our democratic way of life. These are things that you can start doing on a, on a completely a fundamental level. You can get involved in a Toastmasters club at your company, but these are things you figure out what it is you have to say. You, you can find a forum for it and you can start your life as a public speaker. Love it. Like I said, we could go on forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. So let's go ahead and wrap it up with a quick random round. Let everybody get to know you a little bit. Are you okay with that? Sure. All right. If you could have any profession other than what you're currently doing, what would you like to attempt? Oh, professional golfer. Okay. Do you <laughs> golf now? I, I grew up golfing. My, my dad played golf every day of his life. And, but you know, other things are, have overtaken my time, but. Yes, I know that feeling. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? I definitely, it, it would definitely be in Europe and it would definitely be at probably in the Renaissance when new kinds of art and thinking and exploration and discoveries were being made. I think that would be absolutely incredible. And uh, I, I would like to stay in some, some of these. Now, granted, they don't have the luxuries of what we have today, including inside plumbing, but I think it'd be interesting. <laughs> awesome. Um, superpowers, skills, whatever you want to call them, qualities. What do you think you're the most valuable one for getting you through your life has been? Uh, for me? Yes. Oh, no question, love of people. Amazing. Um, books, when you're reading them, content, when you're consuming it, do you like to read it, hold the book, smell it, turn the pages, or are you an audiobook listener? I'm definitely a hardbound reader because I don't have a lot of, like, when, when I'm hiking or, you know, when I'm doing something in a solitary way, I'm just not, I know this runs against the trend, but I am not a person, I don't want to I want to enjoy what I'm doing I, and I want to be engaged in, if I'm out in nature, which I, I really like to do, I like to hike and I like to be on my bike. I don't want to be listening to something. And I, I, I'm a musician, I'm very into music, but I don't even like to listen to music. I like to experience being where I'm riding or being where I'm hiking, you know? So I know I see, you know, probably a majority of people have got it in their ears and if it works for them, fine. But it works for me to not have other people's voices in my brain while I'm experiencing, you know, going out, exercising, or taking in nature. 
I can totally relate to that. And, and what happens to me is when I try to listen to a book, sorry, I just hit my microphone. When I try to listen to a book, if it's really something that I like, I find myself getting distracted and then forgetting what I'm listening to. And then I end up just having to buy the book anyways to read it after I finished. Huh. So it was just a waste of time. Um, what book, I, we have yours winning your audience, which is amazing. Um, what book do you think you've recommended to people the most? That I would recommend to people? Yes. Uh, well, one that's sitting here on my desk, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, which okay. you probably read, that is uh, indispensable. And I like to read, um, I, I like to read, I would say, I have this other book here, and The End to Upside Down Thinking. I, I like to read widely. Uh, if it's politics, I like to read the whole spectrum. Um, I do also love a novel like Where the Crawdads Sang. Have you ever read that? I mean, that is I have not. not. Oh, it is run to get that book. I it will do that. not to be missed. It is just, uh, it's incredibly rich with metaphors uh, about nature and relationships. It's an unbelievable book. Where the Crawdads Sing, and uh, but now I'm reading Lynn Olson's uh, Madame Forcade. She was the uh, woman who led the uh, resist in the resistance in World War II. She was a spy, and she ran a spy network for uh, the Allies. And she was just an, an unbelievable person. And so I'm, I'm really you know kind of in the middle of that book right now. Amazing. You've mentioned music a little bit and I'm a music nerd. So I always have to wrap this random round up by asking people what you listen to, what's your pump up song, what kind of gets you, what type of music gets you going in the morning when you need some motivation? Oh, well, I'll tell you, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty eclectic person. So, uh, but I have to say, <laughs> I'm also very into, uh, music affects me a lot. So I try to do things, uh, I'll give you a range. So Michael Buble is, is a huge person for me, uh, but also um, this guy, his name is Stefan Hauser. He's the leading cellist. In, okay. uh, he's from Croatia. Uh, totally not to be missed person. And he did a COVID uh, concert from uh, Croatia where he sat in the middle of a Roman amphitheater all alone playing his cello for 30 minutes it was galvanizing it was beyond Stefan Hauser to get him and he does these concerts with this woman her name is Lola and she is a phenomenon as well so the two of them so she plays the piano and he plays the cello so anyway so you can see and this is not stuffy classical music by the way it's like got a lot of power going into it. So there's that, there's Michael Buble. I, I also like, um, oh, who is that guy? I mean, I like, I like a lot of different genres, really. I love it. I can definitely relate to that. What, did, what um, instrument did you play when you were a musician? Yeah, so I'm still, I, I play the piano. Uh, I play the organ sometimes. Uh, so I grew up, learning to play the piano and the trumpet. And the trumpet, those were my dad's instruments as well. My dad was a professional trumpeter early in his life. 
And uh, we played the trumpet together. We played duets together. Aww. And uh, he was a much better piano player than I am. He could play by ear. So you could just say, hey, could you play this? And he'd sit down and play it. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Doesn't that just, like, make you sick? I'm a piano totally. player, and I work for every single song yeah. I can play. And then Me somebody too. sits down, and I'm like, just get the heck out of here. No, like, I know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your passion and stories. And just you have such so many amazing stories so for everybody that's listening that is intrigued go check out that book if you're not intrigued you should be check out the book anyways go grab that on amazon and thank you so much james for being on the podcast i really appreciate it loved every minute of it thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the show i hope that something that was said resonated with you or provided value to you in one way or another I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the show. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Amber Furman. Also, I've created a Facebook community for followers of the show to interact with me and other members of the community. You can find that on Facebook at More Than Corporate. So go ahead and join that group if you'd like to stay up to date on podcast happenings and meet some really cool people. Again, thanks so much for tuning in.